Hi, you're listening to The Cardigan, a special series from Selfie, focusing on the intersection of psychology and self-care. I'm Kristen, a licensed therapist, a skilled catastrophizer, and mom of four. And I'm Matthias, a licensed therapist, side-eye aficionado, and a dog dad. We're going to be taking your mental health questions, chatting about our own journeys, and looking at psychology in the media. We hope you learned something about yourself, the people you love, and the world of mental health and maybe laugh a little along the way. So go grab some tea and your favorite cardigan and we'll meet you on the couch. Hey guys, welcome to Selfie. Today we're going to be chatting with author Andre Henry about his new book, All the White Friends I Couldn't Keep. It is a very illuminating conversation about race, friendship, and advocacy. I really appreciated his perspective. I hope you'll listen to that. But first, I'm going to do a self-care check-in with Matthias. Hey, Matthias. Hey, Kristen. How's your week? Uh, oh, well, my week has been... Hmm. <laughs> it's been a bit of a bumpy week. Mm. Um, you know, here's the thing with teenagers. In many ways, they're very easy. I, I don't... I've said this. I don't find teenagers to be quite as difficult as I was expecting them to be. But here's the thing with teens. You just don't know day to day. You just don't know. And, you know, you can get into a stride where you're like, this is easy. They don't need me as much. I think I can relax. I can. I think I can spend more time away from home, you know, and then suddenly something will happen where you're like, no, I. they need my constant supervision. Mm-hmm. But it's a weird supervision. It's almost like you're a, like a lady in waiting. Like mm. most of the time you don't do anything uh-huh. and they can cook their own food and they can get themselves dressed and get themselves, you know, but then when something happens, especially socially, emotionally, and you're, if you're not there at the waiting, things can go south so bad. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. So it's just this, it's so volatile. It's so mm. volatile. And that f- feeling of like, where you can just be trucking along with the normal stresses of life. Right. And then things can just go south so bad, so fast. Ugh. I mean, how does that affect you? Like, like I know we're talking about the teens and the effect on them, but like, what? how does that affect you? Well, if you're asking if I have any level of emotional individuation from my children, the answer is no. <laughs> <laughs> no. I mean, that's Zero <laughs> differentiation from their feelings. So how does it affect me? I don't know, Matthias. How does it affect them? I'm just <laughs> along for the ride. <laughs> Whatever their feelings are is my feeling. Yeah, yeah, that's fair. <laughs> it's like that happy wife, happy life. Like, you know, it's true with kids, too. Like, I feel like I heard someone say, like, you're only as a parent, you're only ever as happy as your saddest child. Yeah. And it's mm-hmm. true. It's mm-hmm. so depressing, but it's true. Uh, yeah. Um, but yeah, that's that's how I feel. And we, yeah, we were just trekking along. Everybody's going good. And then there was just a situation with one of my kids on a Friday night that just took over. Mm. That was very emotional. That was very draining. That kept me up all night one night. Um. And it just it it feels like you're always kind of sucker punched, yeah. Because you don't know, yeah. But it is. It's very interesting. Like I, 
was talking to a friend about this. Like when, you know, when your kids are little, they're hard. But you could like, you could hire a babysitter. You could outsource some of it. It was a generic hard and a predictable hard. Like Mm -hmm. today I'll have to make this many, many meals. I'll have to change this many diapers, you know. But now it's like, it's, it's rarely hard, but when it's hard, like it's all you, you can't outsource it. Yeah. You know, like I wouldn't even hire a babysitter at this point. Not that my kids necessarily need it, but like if I was going on a trip, I couldn't hire a babysitter because their issues are so complex and deep and like specific to, you know, like you would need such specific knowledge. Totally. Right. Which that feels a little bit exhausting also. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Cool. That's where I'm at with my teens. Like, I don't know. I love them, but they confounded me a little bit this week. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then they're also delightful. Right. Yeah. All, all is true. Mm-hmm. How about you? Yeah. I I feel like I'm in the midst of like, I feel like this happens to me every spring and it probably is seasonal, <laughs> but like the... I don't have to live like this energy of cleaning. (laughs) Totally. No more wire hangers. Right. Like I all of a sudden have all of this energy of where most of the year I'm like this cardboard box that should go in the recycling can just go back in this corner. And then I never, right. It's Uh like, this is, yeah. (laughs) And all of a sudden I'm looking around my apartment and I'm like, well, I can get rid of this. I can get rid of this. I can put these Mm -hmm. out. And just like that Mm -hmm. energy of, I'm going to put this poster in a frame after it being hung on the wall with silly putty for five years. Like totally. (laughs) So and that's I've I I love that because it's so rare. Yeah. <laughs> that I get the energy and motivation, then all of a sudden my apartment is starting to look more like what I've always wished it would look like. Yes. And that feels really good. I love that energy too. Yeah. I've not gotten there yet. It's <laughs> I need it. Yeah. I take advantage of it when it comes because it's Oh gosh. Totally. <laughs> it's so rare. I have so many open projects. Like my entire garage, you can't even walk in it. (laughs) And every week I'm like, what if I just took a day and cleaned it out and then it would be usable space? And then I'm like, or I could not. (laughs) Not. Right. It's so much work. Yeah. That's good though. It is good. It feels feels really great to get get those things done. What is the thing you've done that has had the most impact? Even if it's like small. Yeah, g- g- truly getting rid of things like yes. the recycling, like yes. this chair that has been sitting in a corner for forever. I finally <laughs> got it out on the curb for the trash people to pick up. Like, <laughs> so funny. I got a new office chair and yeah. I wheeled my old one into the upstairs hallway. <laughs> and my boyfriend goes, So this is going to be here for like a month? <laughs> and I was like, No. Yeah. Listen. Yeah. The chair has been there for a month. <laughs> there for forever. My mom, like my parents came to visit me, I don't know, six, seven months ago. And my mom just asked me last week on the phone. She's like, so did you ever get rid of your mattress? Because <laughs> I had this mattress oh, just out. It was there. Rude. And, like, what do you do with a mattress? And like, and I did. I had, did finally get rid of it. But like, that's real. My parents know. Like that mattress likely would yeah. still be sitting there yeah. blocking the cabinets. I have to move it every time. <laughs> like. Oh my gosh. What is it with that kind of stuff? I so do that. I yeah. Oh my gosh, I so do that. Do you have a buy nothing group in your town that you mm-hmm. use at all? Yeah. Yeah. 
That is one thing that has helped me because mm. I think a part of my pat racky stuff or pack ratty stuff is I just hate throwing things away. Same. And I always think like, well, someone would right. like this, but I don't know who that someone is. And then I also, like you were saying, I get in the spurts, right? I get in the, I want this gone today, today or never, you know? Right. Mm-hmm. And I do like that I can pop it in that Facebook group and like someone will come get it that day. <laughs> yeah. Th- they're so helpful. They are. Yeah. yeah. Except no one wanted my my chair. So that <laughs> that, <laughs> that, made it that happens. Chair, but whatever. <laughs> and then I put it on the curb and then I went out and looked and it somehow ended up on my neighbor's porch. So apparently my neighbors wanted it. That's really funny. <laughs> Could have just asked them. Now you can keep looking at it. You can you can have visitation. <laughs> right. <laughs> <sighs> well, what do you have for two thumbs up this week? Yeah. So I recently got a ninja foodie. Uh, which is like their version of an Instapot, except that it does pressure cooking, but also air frying and you know, like a billion other things. It's so useful. I'm using it way more than I even thought I would. And I love it. Um, so I guess that's one two thumbs up is the Ninja Foodie. Um, but this 30 minute Instapot butter chicken recipe that oh I Oh my found, gosh, yum. It is so good, Kristen, and it feel it's like faster than getting Indian delivery. Wow! Um, it is in this Instapot. Like it, I have made it so many times. I'm probably gonna get sick of it at some point. <laughs> <laughs> but I am still in the in the phase where it is delicious, and it only takes thirty minutes. And I think it's better than some Indian delivery I've had. Like, Oh, my gosh. And is it – I mean, I'm always a little daunted by Indian food. I'm not going to lie. Me too. And all the times I feel like – my friends and I talk about this. You, you, you find those recipes where it's like let it simmer for eight hours and you yeah. expect it to be just like the best Indian food you've ever had. And then it's a major disappointment, right? Like yeah. <laughs> I've done that so many times with curry recipes or whatever that I'm like – this is not what I wanted, and I just spent a whole oh, day totally. on it. This recipe, for I don't know, whatever reason it is, and it, it is by an Indian woman, like, and she's got it down. She's like a food scientist as well, and oh, she wow. was like, this is how you do it for it to be perfect, and it's delicious. Okay, I'm going to have to try this because I'm looking at the ingredients, and, like, that's another thing that will sometimes make me feel intimidated is, like, oh, I need to go to a specialty store. Right. These are achievable ingredients. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, it's so easy. It's, like, a can of tomatoes and mm-hmm. the spice blend and some extra paprika and, yeah, <laughs> let it pressure cook for literally 10 minutes and off you go. Okay, I do need a little more information about the Ninja Foodie. What is different about that than a than a Instapot? Yeah, well, I think the main thing is the fact that it, it's an air fryer as well. What? And yeah. So I didn't, I hadn't had an Instapot, but I've been thinking about getting one for years. And then this was on sale at Target and I needed like a dehydrator as well. And so uh-huh. I was like, or how I found it was I was looking for dehydrators and then saw that this dehydrates, it's an air fryer and it's a pressure cooker and you can saute Whoa. in it, you can bake in it. Like it does, like if you, didn't have a stove or an oven like right you could like make all your food in this yeah and i literally i've been using it for everything recently like making rice (laughs) you talked about not me not having a rice cooker oh my gosh so does it make good rice it does make good rice (gasps) yeah it's a game changer okay i am very interested because i have 
all of these things separately. I have an Instapot. I have an air fryer. I have a rice cooker. And it's it takes up a lot of space. Right. Yeah. This does all of those things in one handy little okay, machine. Okay, I am definitely yeah, going I to be literally doing some never research. put it away at this point. Like, yeah, it, is it just out sits on, on the table permanently because I use it pretty much every day. Oh, it's so funny. Okay, yeah. I'm looking into this. Um, okay, my two thumbs up is a fun one to report on because this is something I asked about in the selfie group Ooh. for advice. So I, in terms of like drinking water at my house. For years, I've been using a Berkey. Do you know what a Berkey is? Mm -mm. So it's this giant, expensive um, water filtration system. And I actually, it, I learned about it from my previous um, host, Sarah, um, Sarah James. And it's good. It, 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 it does a really good job of filtering water. It's got, you know, all of these filters and it like adds alkalinity into it. Um, but... It, it is a big, giant stainless steel canister. Oh, huh. Does and it like live in your fridge or? No, it lives, it's way too big for a fridge. It okay. lives, for me, it just lives on top of my um, kitchen island. Oh, okay. And it's interesting because some people really like the look of them. And they are very pricey. So I think some people like having their sitting out. I did not like it. And I felt like it's stainless, so you're constantly having to wipe it down because grimy hands are getting water out of it all day. Yeah. And it's very tall, and it just, like, wrecks the sight line of the kitchen mm -hmm. island, you know. Mm -hmm. um, and I mean, this is so petty, but, like, I don't have anything stainless in my kitchen. Everything's matte black. Ah, yeah. So I'm also like, this metal doesn't even match. <laughs> That's real, though. <laughs> peak first world problems <laughs> but i just didn't like having this thing sitting out it just felt i'm trying to like keep everything clean and it just felt like a clutter like an appliance sitting out mm. so i've been trying to find something that goes under the under the water faucet so that it just comes out of the tap and i kept looking at these reverse osmosis systems yeah and i had asked for advice on selfie and the one that i landed on is called it's the weirdest brand name it's called Frizz life. Okay. Like your hair is frizzy for yeah. life. Frizz life. But it had really good reviews, which, you know, I was kind of going by that. And you, it, it, it's the size of an old computer. You know, the old computers, mm -hmm. <laughs> like yep. when, when they would make space for a computer in a desk, yep. like a desktop computer, it's about that size. Okay. So like the size of your first computer at home. Bulky. It's bulky, but not too big. I mean, big enough to, if you have a cabinet under your sink, fit it down there. Yeah. So then the water, you connect the water to that. And then rather than having it come through the main tap, because then you're wasting filtered water on like washing dishes, uh -huh. I just got one of those little taps that sets next to it. Right. Now it came with one, but it came with a stainless steel one. So that was unacceptable, obviously. <laughs> So that I immediately put on my buy nothing Facebook group. Who wants this piece of garbage, brand new stainless steel? Uh, and then I bought a matte black one. Yes. Like a civilized person. Um, but it was $60 off. It actually still is $60. So I'll link it up. It's not cheap. It was 400 bucks. But let me tell you, the taste of the water from this thing is so good. Oh, yeah. I really like alkaline water. 
I like water with like a real mineral taste Mm -hmm. and it tastes better than any bottled water I've ever had. Mm. Wow. It's, and I can't believe it took me so long to do this Uh because I've had that stupid Berkey sitting on my counter for years and I kept saying like, I want to get something, but it just, it felt daunting. Right. And another thing is like, there's a lot of people that sell home water filtration systems like it's a whole business and they're so expensive. Right. Like thousands of dollars. Mm-hmm. And so I just, I don't know. I, I guess I thought that it would be more work than it was, but it really was just like, I mean, it involves some plumbing. Don't get me wrong. But like a, a handy person could do it. Yeah. Yeah. You could watch a YouTube. We watched a YouTube video. Totally. I mean, it's a big, I remember when my parents got a reverse osmosis filtration system growing up, like, and it was a major taste difference major which was wild to me like i mean i was a teenager so i didn't really care that much but like i did notice it yeah and then have always wished i had one but you know i i rent so i I don't think i could maybe i could but i'm not at that point in my life so i love that yeah and what's I was a little bit interested because the Berkey, one pain in the butt about the Berkey too, was that you would have to refill it, you know, I mean, every day. And so we kind of had a family rule of like, if you're going to fill it with your cup of water, then take your clean cup first, fill it with water, dump it in the top of the Berkey, then, Uh, you know, replenish, then take. Right. Nobody did that. No, right. It was a constant fight. Who emptied the Berkey? Who left it empty? You know, like, I have no water now because it takes a while to filter through. Yeah. Um, but I – and so my kids would actually <laughs> – it did get to a point where no one was allowed to use it but me because <laughs> no one would freaking refill it. Um, so I was a little curious to see if the kids, cause they just ended up using tap water. They're like, I'm tired of the drama of the Berkey and mom yelling at me. I'll just get yeah. water from the tap. It's not even worth it. Who cares? So I was kind of curious cause the tap now is right next to the filtered water tap. Like, are they going to go for the filtered water? And I mean, they are all over the filtered water. Wow. So it definitely, yeah, there's a taste difference if my teenagers are like going for the filter. Love it. Very exciting. This is one of those like very small things that I'm very excited about. All right. Well, we are going to be chatting with Andre Henry about his new book, All the White Friends I Couldn't Keep. Well, today I am thrilled to be chatting with Andre Henry about his new book, All the White Friends I Couldn't Keep. Hey, Andre. Hi. Thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me. I really enjoyed this book. Um, I feel like it is just required reading for um, particularly white people who fancy themselves allies. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> which is which is something i mean let's let's dive in there if you want you talked about that designation in the book and mm-hmm. and gave some advice that i thought was was very good for mm-hmm. white people maybe giving themselves that label mm. you know i'm gonna go ahead and just break like convention immediately and ask you why you felt like this is such a good book for white allies. I'll keep in mind though. I'll keep in mind yeah. we're talking about that that chapter, but when you said it, I was just curious. Yeah, totally. Yeah. I mean, first of all, you gave I felt like the book was so full 
of examples and, and some of them from your own life, right. And from your own relationships with white people. And there were some of them that I read and went, Oh gosh, that's so bad. Like, Oh, the, you know, this, these, these white people are being so cringy and so, you know, out of hand. And then there were others where I went, Oh gosh, like, I I think I've done that before. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? Like you really gave the breadth of, and you talked about that spectrum, but you really Mm -hmm. gave the breadth of, objectively bad behavior and then these like microaggressions of well-meaning yeah liberal white people and Mm -hmm. i and the lens of your own personal experience made it so relatable you know Mm -hmm. um and that's what that's what i meant yeah yeah no i hear that i appreciate that yeah um so yeah when we talk about allies like you have a chapter oh it's the white men explain things to me chapter right and um So I go through a couple of stories of uh, white folks who consider themselves a part of the movement for racial justice and how there's some internal work that needs to happen. And it's, it's not just with it's not just with white people. I mean, we're, right now we're talking about white people and racial justice. But, you know, as a man, there's a that I have to unlearn, you know, when I'm in conversation, a black man, I have to mm-hmm. there are things that I have to unlearn you know, and, and work on, you know, around internalizing the patriarchy, you know, the way that I interact with, um, with women, women of color, black women, uh, LGBTQ people. And the same thing kind of happens where you see the same kind of thing in, in racial justice movements. Yeah. And it's kind of consistent throughout history that oftentimes well-meaning white people will come close to the racial justice movement mm-hmm. or into the racial justice movement mm-hmm. without really um, giving much attention to the ways that they share and express the anti-Black common sense mm-hmm. that that our society is based on. And so, mm-hmm. you know, we've seen these complaints in a recent study, 2000, uh, 2019 study, that is literally about this dynamic about how white people enter anti-racist uh, context mm-hmm. <laughs> and end up burning out the activists of color there and the black activists that are in that space. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I appreciated you talked about that in this sort of dynamic of white people entering anti-racist spaces, but then using their proximity to black people in those spaces as this sort of calling card of look Mm. how anti-racist I am as opposed to it being you know yeah this is a common thing in just activist spaces that that um an organizer named Jonathan Smucker writes about in his book Hegemony How To Mm. and he talks about how many people engage in activist activity movement activity whatever you want to call it as a kind of uh, form of fashion, right? And so, Mm -hmm. you know, we know that, uh, one one minute, let me close this window behind me. No problem. Okay, so we know that oftentimes, you know, people 
with fashion, they wear certain things so they can express what type of person they are. Yeah. Right. So you know by looking at them, you know by looking at them like uh-huh. what, what type of person they are. Yeah. And so people often do this with movement stuff. And so this yeah. is why, you know, people, you know, they have the Black Lives Matter flag in their yard or the yes. you know, or whatever on their bumper st- or on the, the bumper yes. sticker or they're or they're at the protest and they make sure that they take an Instagram photo. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with taking Instagram photos. Mm-hmm. But this is just these are just some examples of how, mm-hmm. you know, we engage in the movement as a form of fashion sometimes. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, that ha- we see that in the movement as well, where it's like, okay, you're here because you want to be on the right side of history or you want people to see you as someone being on the right side of history. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but the internalized, sorry, but the, but the very real palpable sense that this uh, society has shaped my common sense and behavior in such a way that I am harmful to mm-hmm. other people mm-hmm. and I need to do something about that. Right. Yeah. I need to take that on out. I need to take that on as my own work. Yeah. I feel like that is a lot rarer to yeah. see. <laughs> yeah. It, yeah. It's, um, I agree. Mm-hmm. I, I agree. Um, let me jump back to the beginning of your book. Something that you wrote that I that I thought was so fascinating is you said, um, I once believed racism was primarily an emotional attitude rooted in ignorance, mm-hmm. irrational hatred for people based on their skin color. There was a time I believed the myth that America is a fair place where people get what they deserve. Mm-hmm. Talk about that process of <clears throat> moving from this idea that racism is just bad people being judgmental mm-hmm to the more global sense of systemic racism where you understand it to be today. Yeah, a part of that misunderstanding, which is a very common misunderstanding, comes from the way that we're educated, right? Yeah. About race and racial justice and all that. First off, you don't I don't know about everyone else, but I, I grew up in Stone Mountain, Georgia, and I was a part of the Ab County school system, mm-hmm. you know, and our education around race is almost zero. Like nobody teaches totally. us in elementary school or middle school or high school yeah. that race is a social construct and not a biological fact, uh-huh. you know, uh-huh. those kinds of basic things that would be helpful to know about race and racism. We don't get yeah. those lessons. And um, then for me growing up in Stone Mountain and being surrounded by the ghosts of the Confederacy and also, you know, the, the monuments of the civil rights movement, mm-hmm. you know, there's a lot of pride in being the capital city of the civil rights movement and Dr. King's legacy, but there's also a lot of holding on to the Confederacy, you know, um, shoot the Georgia flag. I don't know if it still does, but for a long time, at least as far back as I remember, had the Confederate battle emblem in it. Yeah. Right. So, um, when you grow up in that kind of environment, you know, that was the thing that I was taught, you know, that, that racism is pretty much a thing of the past. There mm-hmm. might be some, you know, overt racists out there, but, mm-hmm. you know, it's rare. Mm-hmm. And it was always talked about as though it's this individual emotional right. hate. And even, you know, I write about in the book about how I was perceiving and experiencing systemic racism, but not knowing it. Mm-hmm. And trying to name certain instances as racism, but then there were these adult white people saying, "No, no, no, that doesn't count." <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. totally. all the time, right? You're playing the race. So you're card. not you're being educated 
And then you're being gaslit. Yes, exactly. <laughs> exactly. No, not educating me and then telling me, oh, no, you're just imagining that, you know, yeah. or that's or that's not how it's defined. Right. You mm-hmm. have these. And mm-hmm. as a child, you know, you believe the adults in your life. You yeah. Know, you're bigger. You've been here longer than I have. I guess you're right. Right. Yeah. Um, and so I didn't start really breaking free from that. Um in the book, I say that it really starts to lift in New York, but I think it's actually starts to lift when I moved to Florida and I went to a Bible college out there and I was experiencing some microaggressions. Like one time I got accused of stealing my own bike while I was on campus there because mm-hmm. the security guard felt like I didn't quote unquote look like a student. Um, yeah. <clears throat> you know, what does a student look like? Right. Yeah. Um, and I did try to name things like that here and there. Um and still, same kind of gaslighting. But then when I did move to New York after college, mm-hmm. I would start naming things that happened to me. Like I write about in the book how I went to go look at an apartment. The landlord seemed really excited to rent to me when he was talking to me on the phone. But then, you know, was I could see was visibly disappointed when he saw me in person mm-hmm. and didn't rent the apartment to me. When I would start naming things like that in New York, people just agreed with me. People would say, yeah, that's right. racist, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then I started learning about, I didn't have the language for systemic racism mm-hmm. until I was in New York because mm-hmm. that's, you know, there was a church event, which I, I often get nervous to even talk about, you know, my upbringing in church and all that kind of stuff. But I'm learning to also just be honest about how I came to learn some of these things. I learned about systemic racism because three black women at my, at my church felt like it was important to have an event about whiteness. Wow. You know? In 2014, I think it was. It was like, it was yeah. around the time that Eric Garner was killed. Yeah. <clears throat> I think, so that, that's 2014, 2015. There were three black women in my church uh, who's, who said, we need to have an event about whiteness. And I'd never even heard that term before, whiteness. Mm-hmm. You know, and before the first time I was in a racial justice conversation that was looking for the root cause of racism, but wasn't looking in black people for it. Yeah. Wasn't saying, because that's usually how these conversations I was used to them being had was what's wrong with black people to where we keep suffering so much. Yeah. But this conversation about whiteness was bringing up something that I had not considered before, which is the root cause, the root of all this racial violence or Mm -hmm. at the root, you know, is that some people really believe that they're white. Yeah. You know, yeah. I mean, so that's how it, I mean, I've taken a long time to answer this this, this question, but that was kind of how things started beginning to lift was being introduced to not just not introduced, but someone confirming that I was not mm-hmm. just mm-hmm. imagine I wasn't hallucinating about these things. Yes. You know? Yeah. So um, from there, there is a line from there's a line of progression from there where all of these deaths that we watched, you know, from 2015 to 2016, mm-hmm. you know, they begin to weigh more heavily than they did, you know, mm-hmm. when I when I heard about Trayvon Martin and eventually provoking me to say, I need to learn more about mm-hmm. this idea of systemic racism, which put me on a journey to just read voraciously about the history, you know, really uh, at first of the criminal justice system in America. Then I start seeing how my personal experiences are connected to a much larger story. Yeah. That the way that you described that gaslighting, 
I feel is so important for people to understand. And I, I only understand it from my own experience, which is I have black children. When I have talked about their treatment in certain white spaces, I've had that same, I think you're overreacting. I, you know, I don't think that's what was meant. Um, and it's just such a curious phenomenon to me, this white impulse to deny racism. It's so strong. Yeah. And disorienting. Yeah. I mean, this is a huge deal. And I had no idea how relevant that chapter near the beginning of the book, I think it's chapter two, about racial gaslighting was going to be in this age because, you know, something that empires do throughout history is they they make up stories about themselves. Yes, narratives. Yeah, they create these narratives to to frame their their consolidating of power, their dominating of other nations and peoples as a positive thing, Mm -hmm. right? So, you know, like I could go down the list of, you know, the ideology of ancient Egypt or Babylon or Mm -hmm. or Rome Mm -hmm. or Assyria, you know, the empires always have a good story to tell about themselves yes. and America is no different. Yeah. Yeah. So, so the gaslighting is on a, on a systemic level yes, you know? it is. Uh, because it's in the history books, it's in the media, yeah. it's in, it's in the religion, you know, it's in all of these different outlets. Mm-hmm. And um, we're seeing it again, you know, with the book bannings and the book burnings and the oh my gosh, labeling all kinds of things as CRT, yes, you know that are not CRT, yes, you know, like, and I write about this in chapter two as you know, like the systemic part of it being like I grew up in Stone Mountain, Georgia, mm-hmm. and that is the largest Confederate monument in the country is on the side of this is on the side of this huge uh-huh. rock, and the idea for the monument was came from Klan sympathizers, Ku Klux Klan sympathizers. It is the site where the Ku Klux Klan was reborn. And I never heard any of no. that growing up. You know, no. when I learned, you know, when I learned that the Ku Klux Klan came up with the idea for that statue, uh, <laughs> I think it was 2020. I think that was when I learned that. Andre, I grew up in Florida. We drove by Stone Mountain multiple times a year. Mm-hmm. I learned about this reading your book. Right, <laughs> right. Right, like I, I knew no it idea. was, I knew it was racist. <laughs> I knew it was racist, but I didn't know it was like the clan. Yeah. Like I didn't know it was the idea of clan sympathizers, and I didn't know that the original, you know, idea for this monument was not to have the three Confederate generals, but to have just a parade of Klansmen behind yeah. Robert E. Lee on the side yeah. of that rock, and that the same person who did that carving also did Mount Rushmore. So mm-hmm. I didn't know all these things, right? Yeah. This is a part of what I'm calling the systemic gaslighting is that, mm-hmm. you know, we had organizations like the Daughters of United Daughters of the Confederacy who campaigned, pushed for a revisionist history to be taught in Southern schools about mm-hmm. the reason that the Civil War was fought and all this kind of stuff. So anyway, the gaslighting is very real on a personal and systemic mm-hmm. level. Yeah. And it's 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 taught throughout the it's 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 happening or it has happened throughout the the whole white world, you know, yeah. which I you know, I write about, you know, how, you know, we see this in school curriculums in Europe. A lot of the a lot of the great nations of Europe don't want to talk about 
how their wealth was built and the yeah. colonies that they had in the Caribbean mm-hmm. and Africa or South America or wherever. You know, and it's continuing to happen right now, you know, yes. with all of these big lies. People are going to extremes to silence. Oh yeah, they don't people don't want to talk about this history and uh, mm-hmm. they don't want to they don't want to face this truth. Mm-hmm. And it, it's incredibly dangerous and concerning. So, like I said, I had no idea how relevant that chapter alone was going to be yeah. to this moment. Yeah. Another, you know, you you talked about one instance of gaslighting with a family that you were really close to. And that part broke my heart. Yeah. But one of the ways that they attempted to sort of silence your voice was they, they said, we're not talking about politics. Yeah. And then mm-hmm. they put race under that umbrella. And mm-hmm. that to me mm-hmm. was so relatable because I feel like I see so many people doing that. It's like, we don't want to talk about politics. So you can't now talk about your lived experience. Right. Right. And man, you know, that was a really difficult chapter to write, not just because of, you know, reliving the feeling of not feeling like I could be close to these people anymore, but because <clears throat> You know, I really was trying to connect the dots between, like, uh, this desire to because we're 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 eating lunch, right? Mm-hmm. And they're saying like no pot, no no political discussion at the table. And I'm trying to connect that idea that we just want to live comfortably and consume, yes. you know, whatever goods that we have, yeah, with with this kind of historic dynamic that has existed like and this ties back to something you mentioned earlier you pointed out earlier is like we talk about racism as though it's just this personal thing this emotional Mm -hmm. thing Mm -hmm. without understanding that racism has always been about power and it's always been connected Mm -hmm. to the production and consumption of goods Mm -hmm. (laughs) right it's always been or I should, maybe, maybe I shouldn't say always, but the the racism that we know today, yes, <laughs> has always its been roots hard. are in that for it, sure. It, its roots are in capitalism, yes. right? And so here is a family saying we don't want to hear about the lived experience of of racialized, marginalized people, mm-hmm. you know, so that we can sit comfortably and enjoy our tacos, right? Yes, which is not exactly the same but i feel like it is on the same trajectory as their predecessor their predecessor centuries ago saying like we just want to sip tea yeah. we don't want to talk about yeah. you know the the people the 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 money that is generated to to mm-hmm. buy these goods and consume them mm-hmm. from black labor you know and not just black yeah. labor, but black captive labor, you know, the violence of enslavement. I loved this quote from the book. I, I wrote this down. To the privileged, peace means keeping a safe distance from the cries of the oppressed. Oh, yeah, for sure. Absolutely. You know, um, and I think in that in that same area is where I'm talking about, like when, you know, when we're talking about privilege, those who are on that side of it have a hard time distinguishing between their personal comfort and actual social peace, right? Yes. Because they're saying, well, I'm at peace. I feel fine, right? Yeah. And that was the attitude that I got a lot from white people when I was in these conversations was like, mm-hmm. well, 
because they're not experiencing it and they don't see it, then they they conclude that it doesn't exist. Right? Yes. And they weren't bothered by it until you started talking about it. Therefore, you're disturbing the peace. Yeah. But not realizing that like the people who are experiencing these injustices or these microaggressions or this violence, they are not at peace. You know? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Something I just, I had a little light bulb about what just now was this dynamic between white people saying we don't want to talk about politics and putting race under the political umbrella when it's Mm. uncomfortable, Mm -hmm. but then denying that racism is systemic. Like what a weird mental gymnastic. Absolutely. And that's the thing where I'm just like, (sighs) white supremacy or anti-blackness, you know, is a bad faith endeavor to begin with, Mm -hmm. right? Because it's not about truth, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. It's it's about um, preserving the power dynamics of race. Mm -hmm. It's about uh, keeping white people comfortable, Mm -hmm. you know? And so whenever it's, it's just like what we saw with like evangelicals, which I was a part of the evangelical church for a long time, you know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's like when it was convenient, you know, they held all of these values about morality and sexual integrity and all this kind of stuff. But then, you know, when Donald Trump is running for the election and that, Access Hollywood tape came out. I think it's yeah. Access Hollywood. Yeah. You know, oh, all of a sudden, like, they don't care about that anymore. Family back. I mean, thinking about how they talked about President Clinton and really believed that President yeah. Clinton did not deserve to be president anymore. Because of his moral immorality. Exactly. Mm-hmm. But it didn't matter what Donald Trump said or did. Yeah. Because at the end of the day, what's really important is preserving the racial hierarchy, mm-hmm. right? And so, yeah, I mean, we see these kinds of contradictions all the time when we start interrogating it because it is a bad faith endeavor to begin with. Yeah. You you mentioned you came out of, you know, evangelical faith space, as did mm-hmm. I. And yeah. you mentioned in the book that, you know, there are some people who use a bastardized Christian theology as like a, a pillar or a way to support white supremacy. Talk, talk about that more. I mean, well... There's no way, I think, to have like a complete conversation about racism and racial justice, all that kind of stuff without talking about the role of the church. Because, you know, for so long, excuse me, for so long, like, you know, the church has just been deeply involved in the Mm -hmm. construction and preservation of of these systems of racial violence. Mm -hmm. You know, we can go all the way back to the 1400s with the the Pope, you know, writing, uh, giving a permission slip. To mm-hmm. colonizers to go in to indigenous land, enslave, rob, kill mm-hmm. indigenous people in the name of Jesus or on the basis that they are not Christian. And so, therefore, they don't deserve to be treated with yeah. respect or whether that's respect for their actual bodies or for their culture, for their religion, for their spiritual t- traditions, for their societies, you know. Um, and I would say, you know, in my experience or from my, from my vantage point, it seems like that has been the most popular version of Christianity in the world. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. that is the Christianity that most people know. Yeah. Um, and I feel like, you know, Christianity has been used for a long time to convince oppressed people not to fight for their 
rights, not to fight for their freedom. You know, which is what Frederick Douglass said, you know, in Mm -hmm. one of his speeches, he said, you know, he felt there was a time when he felt like if he would have run away from the work camp that he was uh, enslaved on, that the wrath of God would follow him. Mm -hmm. So, Mm -hmm. you know, that's that that is powerful, you know, to think about. It's been a very powerful tool for that. And I feel like that is what, you know, people were trying to do to me is tell me that, you know. Racism is not a priority to God, which is a direct quote, mm-hmm. you know, or, you know. You're being divisive if yeah, you're talking it's, it's about part, it. It's not a part of the gospel. Mm-hmm. You know, Jesus didn't lead any protests. You know, you name mm-hmm. it. People are trying to use this faith yeah. to, to tell me that I'm sinning. Yeah. Right? I'm, yeah. I'm sinning by telling the truth. Yeah. I'm sinning for trying to organize or, yeah. try, or, or protesting and all these kinds of things, you know. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I appreciated how you talked about it, about that in the book and just that r- reality of this being another aspect of the gaslighting, mm-hmm. you know, God is in control. You talked oh, about yeah. that, that narrative of like, well, we shouldn't fight. We'll just sit back and like, yeah, yeah. We'll just sit back and let it happen. And it's like, okay, well, the Christians who are in support of white supremacy don't ever sit back and say, we'll just let God make sure that we that we stay on top as That's white right. people. Right. You know? They're working. Right, right exactly. They're yeah. always working. Yeah. You know, and, and we could even bring this further because a lot of white people that are against racial justice movements are um, decidedly pro-life, mm-hmm. right, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, about reproductive rights and all right. that and singularly pro-life <laughs> yeah and they don't say well god yeah. is on the throne god will make sure that no more that no more abortions happen oh right? that's such a good point they're right than, like we're, we're gonna be activists in that lane yeah they're more than willing to be politically yeah. active stand on government building steps with red tape over totally. their mouths or, so right you know yeah. telling people who to vote for and how to vote and all mm-hmm. sort of kind of stuff they're they're totally willing to yes. become activists in that sense because they feel like uh, what they believe about the 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 right to life mm-hmm. of of the unborn, you know, warrants yeah. their their participation in the political process in this way, you know. Yeah, but they can't extend that, or not they can't, they won't. They, they won't. refuse to extend yeah. that same logic, you know, to people who are fighting, people who are not in the womb who are actually experiencing living, breathing, experiencing today. Yeah. Living, living within all of this violence. That, that is an epiphany for me. Let me tell you, I just have not made that connection because I grew up in the evangelical church and we did go on pro-life marches as a kid. Oh yeah, absolutely. A hundred percent held signs. It's so, so cringy in retrospect held signs. And, and yet, I'm sure that same church is not marching for racial justice. Yeah. What I see right now is like Christians who are totally fine being activists against CRT, against yeah. critical race theory. Like, they, yeah. you know, I, I see people who are willing to, you know, start entire blogs and tweet every That's day right. about it and hold conferences about it yeah. and try to rally people to go to school board meetings and all sorts of kind of stuff. They're totally fine doing that. Right. Yeah. Just four years ago, five years ago, two years ago, these same people mm-hmm. were against people marching in the streets right. after the death of Philando Castile or, yeah. or Sandra Bland or George uh-huh. Floyd, mm-hmm. you know, 
Or taking a knee, God forbid, you know. Right, exactly, exactly. It's the same people. Yeah, it's the same people. It's <laughs> some so of the true. same people anyway. Yeah. You know? yeah. Uh, another um, part of your book that I really appreciated is you talked about this Heineken ad from a few years ago. And I remember <laughs> it, right? And it was like, they were just sitting people down, like the, the climate change denier and the climate mm-hmm. change activist. And, you know, if we can sit them down with a beer, with, of course, their branded beer, you know, that people are really just the same, you know, and they can just have conversations and we all, we can all get to peace. And you pushed back on that, which in a way that I really appreciated. Talk about this myth of if we can all just sit down. Oh yeah. Everyone wants, uh, I've said it many times that coming to the table is overrated. <laughs> yeah. Well, and even maybe, table. even maybe dangerous, right? Even maybe kind of yeah. like self-abusive. Yeah, because in the ad, you have, you know, you have a trans person and someone who, mm-hmm. and a transphobic person, mm-hmm. you know, and having them sit down with each other. And you know what? Listen, like, it's their prerogative, right? Like, there, there's a black man out there that goes and befriends Ku Klux Klan members and tries to help them see, sure. you know, that, you know, the things that they believe about Black people are lies. And that's his prerogative. Like, I'm not going to say that he shouldn't do it. What I'm going to say, though, is that people outside of these communities don't get to demand that people who are experiencing that kind of, you know, uh, opposition, let's say, harm, Uh you know, that they get to, you know, uh, impose that. Lay themselves at the feet of... We these conversations. Get, they don't get to impose that onto people who are yeah. experiencing that harm. You yes. Know? And that's why I look at ads like that. And, you know, I it gives me concern because I feel like it is reflecting a very real desire that people have in society to see people who are being harmed yes. persuade the harm doers to do yes. differently. And that's what I saw. The, I, I saw this the other day. The black man that I mentioned, someone posted this the other day, a picture of him. I know this story already, but they posted a picture of him the other day with his you know, former clan mem- member friend. And they're going, this is the way that we create change. And I'm like, okay, well, you're a white guy, first off. Yeah. So you don't get to say how this is going to change. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you don't, it's not just because you're white, but it's like, you're a white guy. You're not really working on this problem every day. You don't know what it feels like to be a black person. And for you to suggest that the way that this changes is for black people to go and befriend Klansmen, which is first off dangerous on several levels for us, right? It's not safe. It's not safe physically. It's not safe emotionally or psychologically. Mm -hmm. You know, for you to say that the way this changes is for black people to go and try to befriend Klansmen and help them see the error of their ways is not only wrong, it's wildly insensitive and inconsiderate. And so what I said to this person is white people should be going and doing that. Yes, white people I love should be that. going and, and yes, white people should be going and and talking to their uh, talking to other white people, especially yeah. these, you know, especially if you're talking about people who are violently, you know, anti-black, yeah. like that. That shouldn't be black people's work to do, you know. And then you have like all these other white people chiming in, which I try not to get into these conversations. So I just left when I saw other people chiming in on this. But it's that kind of thing. Like when I see the ad, it's again. You know, me coming from the church, like everyone talks about, you know, Jesus teaching to turn the other cheek Mm -hmm. when we're talking about black people fighting for their rights. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We don't talk about turning the other cheek when we talk about, you know, the World Trade Center 
falling. Right. You know, we don't talk about turning the other cheek. Shoot. White people don't talk about turning the other cheek. Generally, when they talk about someone breaking into their house. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Right. Like, okay. Then we need a gun. Right. Like you're, you, you're like, listen, like you stepped on my property. You put me in danger. I have the right. Yeah. I have the right to shoot you. Yeah. Right. You know, but when we start talking about how marginalized people or oppressed people fight for their freedom, now all of a sudden everyone was mentored personally by Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. You know, so and I I'm a proponent of nonviolence. You know, I know like, you I'm are. A, right. I'm a proponent of nonviolence struggle. Right. I'm just saying that yes. I feel like there is this desire in white America to mm-hmm. see black people as their little Christ. Yeah. And they they want to see us turn the other cheek. They want to see us suffer, right? Um, in a way. I feel like that is what that's what they tacitly admit is that they want to see us suffer, believing that our suffering will be redemptive for them in some yeah. way. You know? And I'm like, you don't get to put me up on a cross so that you can one day look up and say, and he too was the son of God. <laughs> I'm not doing it for you. Yeah. Yeah. Or at but least man, I don't what, want to. I don't want to volunteer for it. White people love that story, though. Like, I just feel like there's so many even movies of just like, you know, the black person who defends the racist and then they yeah. change their ways. And we feel so heartwarmed about it when like yeah. the reality is that black person probably had to um, endure all kinds of abuse. Yes, they did. And they probably, you know, and they probably live with, you know, live with the pain of what it was like to do that. And it's like, I mean... As someone who was raised Christian, I do believe that there is something beautiful about people being able to overcome their differences. I think that there's something beautiful about forgiveness and mercy and all that kind of stuff. What What is very disturbing to me is that white people seem to believe that that is the only way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like right. The only way that it's going that it's going to change. Right. You know, and that's. It's first off, it's just not even a realistic strategy. You know what I'm saying? It's just not even realistic. And secondly, it's just not true, you know? Well, and there's you you talked about this dynamic also in the book. Like a lot of these people that we're talking about are not going to hear it from people of color. They're actually going to hear it from white people. I was just thinking about that as I was making that point. I'm glad that you brought us there because as I was thinking about it, it's like the the thing that people underestimate when we think about, you know, black people trying to appeal to white people is that anti-blackness works mm-hmm. in such a way right. that when white people are listening to us, like they don't believe us. Totally. And in the book, I'm writing about people that I've known for a long time, people that I consider family, people who know, right. you know, that I, I at least thought looked at me as an intelligent person a trustworthy person, you know, and the people I called brother and sister, people mm-hmm. I called father, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. they didn't believe me. No, they heard and, it. They they finally came around a little bit. Yes. They from, come from back after, from white people after they hear from some other white person that they don't know or some in some cases, yes. fictitious white people. Yeah. Then they're like, oh, well, you know, now I kind of believe you a little bit or yeah. not. I believe you. But a white person said the same thing that you said. And now I'm willing to concede yeah. it because I heard it from a white person. Yeah. Right. 
And I experience that a lot. And so that's the funny thing to me. Funny thing to me is that when people tell me that all I have to do is speak nicely and reasonably to people Mm -hmm. and they'll listen to me, Mm -hmm. I'm like, have you ever tried it as a black person? Yeah. You can't. You're not you're not black. You don't know how people respond to me. Right. You know, well, and and you talked about this in the book, too, that that angry trope, right? Like mm -hmm. that you're not even allowed to express anger, which is a completely reasonable response to this. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It is entirely reasonable. And that is a huge thing is like, you know, people. People's I shouldn't say people, you know, but, you know, my (laughs) people, (laughs) (laughs) you know, but my experience, you know, with, you know, with white, with white folks is the tone policing. Yes. Right. Talk about early, that. Early on, you know, which, yeah. you know, I just don't really, I try not to get into this anymore with people. <laughs> like if they're not, if they're opposed, okay, they need to talk to somebody else. I try not to talk yeah. to opposers, but early on I did talk to a lot of opposers and people were convinced that it's your tone. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. if you say it, if you say it, if you come off angry, then people are just going to be turned off. Well, I mean, me being calm and rational didn't do any, didn't do much either. It just made right. it easier for people to walk away. Right. And in the process, like I'm, you know, like I'm listening to the non, the gaslighting nonsense, you know, and having mm-hmm. to manage that mm-hmm. mentally. So, like, tone doesn't matter when people are upset about the content. <laughs> right. Know? That's great. Like, I mean, yeah. in that sense, and you know, I, I do understand that there are some situations in life in which you can have a difficult discussion as long as you go about it a certain way. Yeah. But this does not seem to be one of them, you know? Yeah. Because the point is not, it, again, it's not about the tone. It's that people just want you to shut up. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. And so for a long time, I didn't say anything because I didn't want to be interpreted as angry. Right. Mm-hmm. And so early on in the book, you see me trying to very respectfully and very gently, mm-hmm. you know, push back on the racist ideas or the anti-black ideas that were uh, being expressed by the white friends that I couldn't keep. Mm-hmm. And it didn't work. Yeah. <laughs> you know? It didn't. Yeah. <laughs> it, it didn't work. Yeah. And so that's the thing that I'm saying about the tone policing is that so many people are convinced that, you know, if you just say it the right way, then it'll work. Right. Well, Again, have you tried it as a black person? Yeah. <laughs> you know. Right. Yeah. <laughs> like, well, yeah. I got a good response when I talked about systemic racism, so black people can just do it and get the same response. Right, exactly. And that is what white people keep on underestimating how they keep on underestimating the power of the color line. Yeah. You know? Because they think that because they had a conversation with someone and it didn't go go so badly that it's going to go the same for me. You and I don't hold the same position in this society. Right. We're not perceived the same way. People don't assume the same things about us when 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 we're talking. And just because somebody says I don't have a racist bone in my body or I don't even see color or whatever doesn't mean that that's true. I always like I do Never say true. this sometimes. But people are like, oh, I don't see color. I'm like, okay. So let's say the police the police. I go missing and the police ask you to describe me real quick. What you going to say? Uh-huh. Uh-huh. You just, I know. You didn't see that at all. I know that you see color. <laughs> I know you see color because you're looking at me and you can tell. 
No. But I that I have brown skin, right? You just don't want to acknowledge the significance yeah. of my complexion in this society. And my um, people are obsessed with this idea. Oh when, yeah. When my kids were little, my boys people loved to come tell me stories about how their child didn't notice they were black, hmm. but they would always be a story more of like how a kid didn't understand genetics, you know, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but it's like, you, first of all, your kid does notice they're black. They're just not talking about it in this context. Second of all, like, right. what is the impulse for you to come tell me this story? Like, why do I keep being told the same story by various yeah. people? Yeah. yeah. I'm so colorblind. That I want to tell you this story about your black children. Yes. <laughs> unprovoked, unsolicited. Yes. Right? You know. So yeah, I mean, this is this is a way that, you know, this is just a way that, you know, a lot of people feel that they're going to be able to attack the race problem. And it's partly why I wanted to write this book. I've been wanting to write a book for a long time, you know, because I've been on my own journey of understanding how does social progress really happen through people who mm-hmm. don't have the resources, you know, to, you know, they don't, we, we, we're not resourced to, to fight against the armed regime of white supremacy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But there have been people who have done it in the past and they've seen some kind of change. Mm-hmm. So then if it happened before, it must be able to happen again. That's yeah. what really provoked me to go on the journey that I've gone on to be able to write this book. You know, yeah. and that really is the thing that I want for people to walk away with is yeah. all the practical insight about, yes. you know, social progress, about nonviolent struggle. Mm-hmm. Because the thing that people have been feeding us, you know, that this is going to be solved by us just sitting down and listening to each other as though there is this both sidesism where black right. people have done just as much harm to white people as white people have done to black people. Mm-hmm. Like that's not going to work. No. You know, all of this like tiptoeing around white people's feelings so that we don't offend them. Mm-hmm. It's just going to make our message unclear, make yeah. the problem unclear, you know? Yeah. And I, I appreciated, you know, you talked about like, you know, white people who are grieved by what they're seeing in the news, yeah. particularly around, you know, um, police violence but they're not grieved enough to make it urgent and radical. Well, yeah, that's what this is something Dr. King complained about when he mm-hmm. said, you know, the thing that people were responding to was they were appalled at the overt and virulent racist behavior of a bull Connor or something like mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. But they were not interested in genuine equality yeah. and they were not uh, they were not being provoked. Mm-hmm. toward the kind of radical action that it would take to bring genuine equality about. And that is something yeah. that seems to still be a true assessment of much of white America. Although in the book I say, I'm not really sure. I don't really know, you know, because mm-hmm. I can't read everybody's mind. Mm-hmm. But what I will say is I do believe that there are many people who are not interested in genuine equality. But I think what seems more obvious to me is that a lot of us still don't really understand the breadth of the Mm -hmm. problem, how resilient the problem is, how deeply entrenched the problem is, how systemic the problem is. Because on the other side of me letting go of the white friends who wanted to stop me from Mm -hmm. participating in the movement for Black Lives Mm -hmm. are people that I met in the movement that meant well and we're very passionate about mm-hmm. being a part 
of, you know, protests and things like that, but mm-hmm. we're not receiving the re-education necessary yeah. or the develop or the, the leadership investment necessary. Mm-hmm. I think I'm wording that weird, but I mean, like people were not investing in building them up as leaders. Yes. There was no infrastructure to build them up as leaders. Yes. That they kind of just became like these really passionate, but ill-informed participants until they burn out, right? That part felt really important to me. I'm, you know, when I said, like, I think this is a book that, you know, all white people who care about this should read, that part felt important that it's, you know, it's, it, it doesn't end with like, I care. Right. Then we need to do the personal work. Then we need to figure out how we're you know, supporting and not co-opting and not centering. Mm-hmm. And like right. that, that just all felt really important to me. And right. I, you know, and I said this at the beginning, I just really appreciated. I, I felt like the book was such a wonderful balance of there was, you know, memoir aspects mm-hmm. for sure, and your personal experience, but then you're, you know, quoting all of these incredible voices and you're really coming through this from like a praxis lens as well. Mm-hmm. I really loved it. Well, yeah. I mean, it's really important to me to make a book that is readable. Yes. Right. That is, and also digest, digestible, yes. you know, but I remember, you know, one of my friends uh, mentioned in the earlier drafts of the book, they were like, uh, you just moved away from yourself so quickly, you know, in the writing. And I was like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, because yes, I'm pulling you in, you know, to my story and I think that my story is interesting, you know, in in hindsight, you know, after writing it down, you know, I think it is an interesting story, but the book is so much bigger than that, right? Yeah. I I hope that people walk away from this book with more than, you know, Andre has such an interesting story, right? Right. Yeah. Um I'm telling you the story uh so that, you know, you get, be, I'm telling the story, I'm, I'm on, if I'm being really honest, I'm telling the story because most people aren't going to read the books that I've read, you know? Totally. Most people totally. are not going to read the books that I've read. Most people right. are not going to go on the journey that I went on. Most people they're are not going to pick up James Baldwin. Yeah. And they're not, and they're not going to, I mean, not even Baldwin. I'm talking about Erica Chenoweth, Sergio Popovich, Gene Sharp. Even Dr. King, a lot of people are not going to read Dr. King's books. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. they're just going to like gonna the sound keep, bites. Yeah, they're just going to keep quoting the color of the skin and <laughs> the context of the character. They're just going to keep doing that, you yeah. know. But they're not going to actually read. Where yeah. do we go from here? Right? Yes. And they're not going to read Gandhi and Thoreau mm-hmm. and you know all these different people. Mm-hmm. And so, my experience in reading all this stuff. And meeting them, like, you know, they're, you know, meeting some of these people. My experience was as I went on that journey, I was just, I just kept feeling like, why don't, why doesn't everyone have this information? Mm -hmm. And it's because, you know, this is a social movement theory curriculum, Mm -hmm. you know, and the way that we think about these things in our consumer society is it's just all about interest, right? It's like a hobby, right? So like, you read about changing the world because that's something you're passionate about and it interests you. Yeah. Like, you know, we forget, like, I am I did all this study to try to save my own life and the life of my nephews and nieces mm-hmm. and my brothers and sisters and, you know, yeah. my, my loved ones, right? So 
I know that that's how people think about this. You're not going to get this information mm-hmm. unless you decide that you want to go get a sociology degree. Yeah. But we all need this information. Yeah. So I want to write the book that I needed when I got started. Yeah. And I want to make sure that that book is readable. Yes. <laughs> you know, because I could have just told everyone, go read Blueprint for Revolution by Sergei mm-hmm. Popovich. Yeah. Right. And then you'll understand more about what actually needs to happen, yeah. you know, for us to change the world. Or go read, you know, go read The Radical King, where Cornell West put Dr. King's writings together. Mm-hmm. I, I already have all these books in an Amazon store, you know, that people <laughs> can buy. I've had it in there for years now, yeah. you know. But the truth of the matter is a lot of people just are not going to do that. Yeah. Well, I don't want this information to be locked away in the margins from people. Yes. So I made it my goal. I've made it my goal over the past several years to try to mainstream. Yeah. Just I want to mainstream this information. And so the book is written in such a way that, yeah, I do want you to be drawn in by the story. And I want for you to Mm -hmm. go along and I want for you to experience these things alongside me. I want for your heart to break, you know, when mine breaks in the book and all of that. Mm -hmm. But really what I want you to know (laughs) <laughs> is that it takes three and a half percent of the pop that you know that no regime has been able to withstand the sustained nonviolent resistance of three and a half percent of the population, and the only way that I'm going to get you this information is if I mix the medicine in with the orange juice. Totally, I love it. I love it. I mean, it, it's funny because when I was writing my own book, you know, I'm like, okay, we're going to market this as a mommy memoir, but then we're going to surprise them with a couple chapters on white privilege, but they'll have yeah. no idea walking in. Yeah, yeah, of course. <laughs> But yeah, yeah, I mean, I I relate to that so much because, right, like people aren't going to pick up these books unless they're already engaged, like, you know, these these heavy theory praxis books unless they're already engaged. And Mm -hmm. I think you completely succeeded in that perfect mix of a memoir that captivated and then you're like, and we're going to quickly dart over here. Yeah. No, thank you. You know, and a part of that is like what I said in chapter three is making that connection. Like, you know, when we say that the personal is political. Yeah. That our, and our personal lives are con- are connected to these much larger political forces yeah. and all this kind of stuff, you know, is for, you know, for me to be telling you a story about I'm sitting at the lunch table with this all white family that I love, you know, and they're telling me that my personal experience can't be discussed at the table because it's politics, you know, that that's not apolitical. Right. And that's right. not that's not separate from the socio-political context that we live in. Yeah. You know? And so to try to help connect the dots between, you know, between the history, right? Is that like when you drive to the mall, that highway that you drive on might have cut right through a historically black neighborhood. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. And it might, Right. And it it might have driven thousands of people out of that area, you Mm -hmm. know, or, you know, caused them to um, experience a level of poverty that they wouldn't have if they weren't built. You know, like that history is significant. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And we're not always making those connections. So, yeah. You know, that's partly why, you know, I, I wanted to write the book that way. And I'm glad that, you know, I'm glad that it worked, you know, because it was very hard to figure out yeah. how, how to structure a book this way. Yes. Yeah. 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 Well, I'm glad you did. I hope people will read it. Where and when can people find your book? You know, you can find it anywhere books are sold. Yeah. You know, um, 
and uh, it's coming out March 22nd. So awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I will have it linked up um, in the caption of this as well. Where can people find you online if they want to follow you? Um, you know, the best the best place is to go to my website. It's andrehenry.co. And awesome. I have an email list there. You know, we send out once a month uh, about about racial justice and social yes. change and, and my music, you know, which is really how I got started in all of this is, you know, yeah. in the, the book very, very much is telling the story of how, like, I went from just kind of writing love songs to, you know, making my art. Uh, more of a way to express myself about, you know, my experience as a black person in, in the world. So, yeah, you know, uh, that's a great place. And I, I think all my social media is linked there as well. Yeah. Yeah. And I would definitely encourage people to follow you on Twitter. I do. And I always appreciate your commentary there. Thank you. Well, thank you so much, Andre. I really appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks for having me. thanks for listening just a heads up we're therapists but we're not your therapists this podcast is not a substitute for therapy and by making it we're not rendering psychological or other professional services if you need therapy we recommend you track down someone to help join us online for more of the conversation in our selfie community facebook group or on instagram at at selfie podcast 